there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today we are speaking with Matt Fenneman, VP of Sales and Marketing at Engineered Profiles, a Columbus-based manufacturer of custom plastic profile extrusion products. For more than 70 years, the company, formerly known as Crane Plastics, has been a recognized leader in the thermoplastics industry. Engineered Profile's advancements include creating one of the first U.S. vinyl siding products, offering custom part finishing, and leading the early development of wood plastic composites. Matt serves as the chief executive over all sales and marketing activities at the company. His experience began in an engineering role at Crane Plastics in the tooling and product development groups. He has also served in a technical sales and business development role. He received a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Franklin University and has taken additional coursework in computer science as well as automation and programming. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I'm just really very happy to be here. Would you provide our listeners with a brief history of Engineered Profiles? Sure. Uh, Engineered Profiles came about in about 2008. Um, Crane Plastics had been started by the Crane family. Uh, back in 1947, and it existed as Crane Plastics up until that point. In 2008, uh, the executive management team then in place purchased the company from the Crane family, and we continued on with the OEM supply business that is Engineer Profiles today. And what role, um, I, I know that there are a lot of, uh, of uh, instances where you highlight the innovations at the company, so what role does that play? Yeah, it's interesting. Everyone asks that question, and it's really the core of who we are as engineer profiles. Crane Plastics had a rich history of innovation, bringing products to life. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the family spun off very many uh, marquee product names that you would recognize today in the decking and siding markets. Uh, when we bought the company, we retained the engineering and, and uh, research and development portions of the company and continue that on today for our custom profile uh, customers. So today we service uh, as an OEM supplier. We don't have any branded products that we that we label and sell ourselves. We act as a OEM supplier. We specialize in customers that have a high cost of failure um, because of our ability to bring innovation and and delivery to the table. Uh, many customers uh, dependent on us in several markets. We're still very strong in the building products segment, but we also service energy, agriculture. Um, office furniture, transportation, several other segments now um, than we did in the past. Can you share one or two case studies that outline the the range of the company's offerings? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll use building products as an example. We're still very strong in that market. Um, you might notice that in the, the the trends in building products have started to go towards dark colors. So the exterior of your house, uh, you'll see a lot more uh, dark uh, black and and tan and browns colors. Well, those dark colors represent a, a unique problem in heat buildup, uh, whereas uh, products used to be white and light, light colors that reflect uh, solar energy. Dark colors now absorb a lot of heat. So to stay in that market in a plastic solution, we've had to come forward with a lot of uh, innovative material solutions that are more tolerant to heat. Uh, they can handle the expansion and contraction that's generated by uh, solar energy on the outside of your house. And we've done that through a number of different uh, material uh, innovations, as well as the way that we tool and develop the parts. Uh, one, one example is uh, we recently, about two years ago, got involved with a glazing bead that was uh, instrumental in holding the glass into the window. Um, the customer wanted to go to a dark color. The use of traditional materials allowed for too much expansion and contraction, which would break the seal on the window and, and create a performance problem. 
Um, they were going to go to aluminum, but they wanted to stay with a polymer solution. So we worked with them to innovate a multi-layer extrusion that puts a, a very um, thermal-resistant material, quite expensive material, but only in the core of the product, and allows us to use the steadfast color on the outside and a more traditional polymer on the inside. But that multi-layer extrusion outperforms uh, the, the, the other options that they were looking at and allowed them to stay in a polymer solution. Oh, that's, that is really interesting. Um, you know, so I, I, I want to actually, since we're on this vein, can, can we talk a little bit more about how the technological improvements have changed the company's offerings over the last yeah. five to ten years? Sure. I think one of the things that's always kind of set uh, engineer profiles aside, and even back in the crane days, is the ability to look outside the box. Um, where, whereas a lot of people become very comfortable processing very mainstream materials, we've always had the ability to dedicate at least a portion of our resources to working on new and innovative materials, which may not be fully developed yet in terms of processability. The chemistry may be there, and in the laboratory, the performance may be there, but that doesn't necessarily always transfer over to a high production situation in which you need to be efficient and cost-effective to produce millions of feet of something. So we've always had a knack at that, at developing the resources to say, hey, we may have to tool this up several times to get it right, but we're going to follow through with that to make it a manufacturable product. Um, some of the innovations that we've been able to use uh, technology-wise to do that is, for example, um, when I started in this business over 37 years ago, tool design was still very much an artwork. Um, today, it's done a lot through computer simulation. So we're able to take a polymer's rheology, uh, design a tool. The, the system doesn't quite design the tool for us yet, but we put the, the rheology information through a, um, a simulation program. It takes our tool design, and it tells us whether or not we're close with that tool design. So it doesn't necessarily take away all of the development work process that we have to go through the handwork that has to be done, but it eliminates about 60% of it up on the front end, which makes it much more efficient to build tools and get a part developed. So you, are you doing a lot of the materials testing virtually now? Um, so on the material testing side, we still rely on laboratories to do physical tests that are to ASTM standards. But when it comes to tool design and processability, yes, we're doing a lot of simulation to, to decide how to process that material. And are you realizing benefits from um, the uh, 3D printer rapid prototyping? Yeah, it's interesting. 3D um, rapid prototyping had an immediate impact on injection molding because if you think about the products around us that are injection molded, um, the difference between extrusion and injection molding are um, extrusion is a continuous process. It lends itself uh, to long parts or parts that can be cut into shorter parts, whereas injection molding yields a, a small part that you can hold in your hand, often, sometimes larger. But you can, you can actually 3D print that entire part. For us, we typically are 3D printing a section or a small piece of what will ultimately be extruded. So it lends itself to test for fit, form, and function on, on engaging parts or, or um, interface between our part and anything else that we might be, uh, um, our parts might be mating with. But it's not quite the same, um, uh, it doesn't step into the, uh, the same void that injection molded parts do very, very powerful for us. We have five 3D printers uh, in, our, in our possession, uh, and, and actually are now looking at metallic printers as well to, to print metal parts. So it, it's, been, it's been very beneficial to us, uh, but on a slower path than probably injection molding or some other processes. I, I think we're a bit away from a 3D printed tool and die. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we've experimented with 3D printing portions of the tooling that we use that are um, 
either that can be um, uh, machined after printing for fine tuning of tolerances, or if they're a section of the tooling that's not as critical, we've been able to 3D print or send it out to have uh, metal 3D printed parts. As as an industry, um, you know, what are are you and, and some of the uh, other manufacturers in this area experiencing in terms of disruptive technologies? Yeah, I think I think we're on the verge of breakthroughs on the material side um, for materials that are enhanced with metallics or fillers or glass or other elements um, that are. And, and what's what's happening, Catherine, is those those materials are becoming more cost effective. Uh, they've been in the lab for a number of years. But the technology to make them readily available and more cost-effective is, is, is really becoming what I would consider a disruptive technology. So you're going to see the, the portfolio of, of polymers that are able to be processed through an extrusion process is going to widen, I think, greatly in the next 10 years. Uh, and these, these new materials are, are lending themselves to um, the environment that we live in today. Um, you know, they're, they're more geared towards sustainability, they're more geared towards long-term application in the field, and they're more geared towards solving problems that polymers traditionally couldn't solve, much like the heat example I gave you earlier. Even six, seven years ago when we were conducting roadmaps of, uh, of Ohio manufacturers, you know, uh, of course, workforce was number one, but the second issue was materials and composite materials just in terms of developing the processes and the equipment that could work with them. So it sounds like you are uh, ahead of the pack in that regard. Well, we certainly are aware of it, and, and we're making sure that we devote a number of resources to that every year when we put together our budgets or we look at our hiring practices on the type of people we're trying to bring into the company. We have that in mind. Uh, we're not certainly not void of the overall staffing issue that everyone's facing, but that that's definitely uh, top of mind is, is innovation and how do we carve out um, time and energy to spend on that so that we're on the forefront. All right, let's put a bookmark on that. I want to talk about uh, the, the reason uh, why your your company was of, of interest in, in the, the new 93,000 square foot acquisition or the production facility in Ironton, Ohio, and then uh, you also acquired Coex Plastic Tooling, which was previously located in Milton, West, West Virginia. What considerations led to the acquisition and the expansion? Well, the the idea to expand has always been top of mind as we've grown. We've had we've had really um, fantastic sustained growth, even even before last year, which was a huge step uh, forward in growth. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to acquire you know new facilities, um, either geographically advantageous by placing them closer to a customer base. Or in this case, uh, this this selection was made because it was it could be executed on quickly. Um, it was a former Dow Chemical site, so it was already set up for manufacturing, in particular set up for extrusion. So it didn't take a lot of uh, energy, cost, and, and time to transition it to what we need. Um, truthfully, the acquisition of, of Coex Tooling was in the works at the same time. And because of the proximity of finding that uh, facility and its proximity to Coex Tooling, it just made sense to put the two together. So we made those we made those two the acquisition of the company and the and the acquiring the the property in close proximity to each other, uh, with the hopes that um, we plan to bring the Coex staff over to help run that facility and facilitate a quick transition. Um, the mindset is to initially move uh, established extrusion operations um, customer base into that plant out of Columbus and free up uh, uh, more capacity in Columbus for some more uh, difficult jobs that are more difficult to run. So we'll take some long runners, some things that are fairly easy to train and operate, 
move them into that facility, and it'll make room in Columbus for things that take more resource. Got it. Um, and as the company has expanded, you've mentioned this a couple of times, uh, I mean, you're posting a whole host of job listings for machine operators, tool and die makers, and uh, and maintenance operators. How, needless to say, th- those are, are tough to come by. So how can you, are, how are you dealing with the competition for those types of workers? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's not easy. Uh, I think on those skilled positions, um, we have a good ability to tell the story of what the job entails. If we acquire maintenance personnel that worked, for instance, when the uh, Kroger Bakery shut down here in Columbus, we acquired a, several individuals out of that operation um, that had skill sets for electrical and mechanical and hydraulic systems. And it, it was an easy explanation of what we offer and, and what we could provide for them. And it, w- it was a smooth and easy transition. When we hire extrusion technicians to run extrusion machines, it's a little bit difficult, more difficult to describe that job as it is to describe it to an engineer, young engineer or a, or a maintenance technician. Um, but I think, you know, I'm being a little biased here, but I think we are a good company to work for. Um, our, our executive management team owns the company, comes to work every day, participates in the operation of the company. We have an extremely open-door policy. Uh, we, we like to be out on the floor and known by the associates and really try to maintain transparent and, and clear-cut two-way easy communication. Um, we try to stay on top of, of, uh, of pay and benefits and stay competitive in our field and competitive in Columbus. Um, but it still is a factory job, and, and we're competing in this area. In Central Ohio, we're competing a lot with, with um, warehousing jobs that ha- have a little bit different environment. You know, we're, uh, we're a plant that has noise and heat and, and uh, smells and sights that, that go with manufacturing. So we have to find the right kind of person that's looking for that kind of a job. Uh, the other thing that we do is um, we've established over the last couple of years a training matrix that shows very clearly when you come into the company, uh, you understand if you're out on the factory floor as an operator, you understand what the width and breadth of that position is and what skill sets are required to get from the starting pay to the top pay. That's, that's prominently displayed with every individual uh, listed out on the floor in the plant. And we do that for a couple of reasons. We do it so that there's open and honest communication on where you are and why but also to help people understand um, what they need to get ahead. And, and, and they're hopefully, the, the, the environment we're trying to foster is their peers and their friends out in production see where they are. So when there's an opportunity to you know, spend time talking to somebody that you know that works with you that doesn't have the same skills that you do, you can uh, informally tell them you know, what you do and why, but also press to get them into the training that they need to acquire those new skills and move up. And has your employment requirements changed with, with some of uh, some of the employees with uh, the new technologies that have been introduced in the last decade? It has, uh, especially in the mid-range engineering and, and uh, tooling jobs. You know, um, when I was a young buck starting off, uh, you know, I learned how, I learned how to do uh, mill work and lathe work on conventional machines. Now virtually everything is computer controlled. Uh, so you have to have a tendency to, to have more um, you still have to have the the old school uh, tool and die skills and uh, machining skills, hand school, uh, hand skills with hand tools and that and those things. But you have to also be a little bit more adept at, you know, researching a problem with a YouTube video to solve a, a maintenance issue on an instruction on how to fix something, or uh, be adept at using the the technology available to you through the internet or through an iPhone or a pad out on the floor to acquire uh, documents that are, that are required to to operate a piece of machinery. So. You're seeing a lot of migration from uh, what our kids do all day long and, and uh, the, the tools that they consider uh, 
a life led to them out onto the workforce. And, and uh, so that uh, I think that uh, a lack of fear of that technology is definitely a must. What new developments are on the horizon for engineered profiles, given uh, you're, you're already experiencing some, some major growth? So what's next? I think uh, in two, in, on both ends of the spectrum, we're looking at, uh, at technology and automation that can not displace employees, but reduce the burden on employees and reduce the number of heads that we need as we grow. Um, better, better work through automation or better work through um, um, tools that help you know, one man do the work of three. Uh, but probably on the other end of the spectrum, just really old school training revision. And, and how do we bring someone in that has no experience with this type of equipment and get them to a point where they're operating equipment uh, unattended or without supervision from another person? So we're looking at things as basic as how folks learn. Um, you know, I remember it used to always be the training manager was just a grizzled old veteran off the floor. Well, now we're learning that a professional educator that becomes very familiar with our processes has a better chance of success to bring people along because they have that skill set of, of how people learn and assessing how they're acquiring information as opposed to um, just an opinion based on how they're performing out on the floor. Are you going with, when you say professional educator, is that uh, from uh, an, an existing educational partner or more of a consulting type of function? To date, it's been mostly just through the way we look at the resumes coming in for that role and, and what experiences they have. Um, we're not necessarily focusing on industrial experience, and, but focusing on, on their, their, their role in other jobs and how they created um, knowledge. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we, we sat through a seminar and learned a lot about um, the way people learn in a completely unrelated field, in the insurance field, just to how, how the learning process is and how the um, evaluation of how people are obtaining information. Uh, we took some nuggets away from that and to understand how people learn and, and really apply that to how we train. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's not, not a problem at all. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much.